appreciate uh, the presence of each one this evening. Hope you brought your Bibles with you in some format, whether you got an old-fashioned book like I use, or you got it on your phone or tablet or something, that you'll follow along with me tonight. Think very carefully about some of the things that we have to say. But again, we're grateful for the presence of each one. We've had a good day today, worshiping together and singing together and praying together and thinking about what the Lord has done for us on the cross and our devotion to Him. Good way to start the week. And we'll be faced with challenges through the week, no doubt, and temptations and uh, other uh, stresses and challenges. But this is a good way to begin the week and recenter our focus on our devotion to the Lord, our commitment to Him, and we hope that will carry us through the week. Now, if you've been watching the news for the last several weeks, you know that there's just, I don't know how to describe it, but just incredible conflict in the Middle East. Several weeks ago, it all started when Hamas, a terrorist group located in Gaza, launched some rockets into Israel and killed several hundred people, over a, a thousand people, well, Israel uh, responded to that in kind and has been uh, involved in uh, retaliation against Hamas and, uh, uh, again, retaliating and so far have killed, oh, I think 15,000 people or so. And if you've seen all that, be watching all that, you know that the brutality is just, oh, it's hard to describe. It's just... Uh, what has been going on is just absolutely brutal. That raises some questions whenever those kinds of conflicts arise in the Middle East, especially involving Israel. That raises some questions in people's minds and the minds of Bible students and uh, questions having to do with Israel and Israel's right to the promised land and uh, do they have a God-given right to the promised land? And how should we think about Israel today? And what does the Bible say about those things? And so I want to think a little bit tonight about some questions about Israel and the land. I, I kind of came up with this little teaching device, oh, I don't know, several years ago, but it seems that it works out pretty well, where you just ask and answer questions as sort of your outline to, to your sermon. And so tonight... Some questions about Israel and the land. And so let's think about what the Bible says about those things this evening. Well, following the fall of Israel and Jerusalem to the Romans in the first century, the national state of Israel was virtually non-existent. And it continued that way for a long period of time. In the 1800s, for example, there were fewer than 25,000 Jews who lived in Palestine. Most of those lived in the city of Jerusalem. It's been described at that time as a, prov a provincial backwater of the Ottoman Empire. And so it's just a small, very uh, insignificant, uh, weak community uh, of people, hardly uh, a national state. In the late 19th century, that's the 1800s, uh, renewed interest in reestablishing a modern state of Israel gained momentum. And so it had been overseen by the British for some period of time, and, and there was just more and more momentum being, being gained about establishing a nas national state of Israel. So following the two world wars, World War I and World War II, the UN, the United Nations, decided to give Palestine divided up into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And you hear about two-state solution a lot today. I think that's the official position of the United States, 
that uh, we would like to see the land divided between two states, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, an Arab state. Well, after the United States, uh, the United Nations uh, made that decision, uh, intense fighting broke out between the two sides. And a year later, 1948, 1948, uh, Israel uh, declared its independence and was recognized as a sovereign state by other nations. And so that was 1948. And so after the fall of Jerusalem in the first century, until about 1948, the middle of uh, uh, that, that decade, uh, that century, the, 19th, the 20th century, uh, is, Israel was, well, uh, virtually non-existent. But it has been reestablished now. And the United States recognizes it politically as a sovereign state as to many other nations. Since that time, there's just been one conflict after another, after another, after another, after another for possession of the land. What basically happened was the United Nations said, okay, we're going to reestablish a nation of Israel. Everybody's welcome to move back. There are already people living there. <laughs> and they said, no, we're not going to move. And so what's happened, of course, is conflict after conflict after conflict. And the United States, our country, is very deeply involved in, in the issue. We're, we're up to our necks in this issue. The current brutalities are just the latest in a series of conflicts. And many students of the Bible believe that Israel continues to enjoy favored status, favored nation status with God, and that the land by divine right belongs to them. And so sometimes these people are called Zionists or Christian Zionists. Some of them are, would be labeled. Some who, who adhere to the dispensational form of premillennialism believe that Israel enjoys a kind of a favored nation status with God and they have a divine right to the land. And so we need to, we need to back them. And I'm confident that sometimes at least political decisions are made based on that, that idea, that belief. And so we want to think tonight about what the scriptures teach about Israel and the land this evening, especially in light of what's going on in the news. Didn't God promise to give the land to Abraham's descendants? Didn't, didn't God promise to do that? Well, yes, he did. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll trace the, this promise, and we'll see the fulfillment of this promise as well. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis provide an account of the descent of man into gross immorality. You remember the time of the flood? Every thought of the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually, and so God decided to destroy the world by a flood. It grieved him in his heart that he had made man, and, and so he comes against the world in judgment in the flood during Noah's day, and everything that breathed uh, on the, you know, everything that walked on the ground or flew in the air that, that breathed air died as a result of the flood. And so God wiped out the ungodliness and unrighteousness and sort of starts over with, with Noah. In fact, God tells Noah some of the same things he told Adam to do in, in the very beginning. And so God decided to bring judgment on the world in the days of Noah. But after the days of Noah, you might think things are going to get better, but they don't get better. They just repeat the same, the same pattern. 
and people fall into ungodliness and descend away from God. Only this time God says, I'm going to bless the world, not because of their unrighteousness, but in spite of their unrighteousness, God is going to bless the world, especially through the seed of Abraham. And so Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God makes three outstanding promises to Abraham. He promises that in your seed or in your offspring, all the nations of the earth, sometimes it says all the families of the earth, are going to be blessed. Sometimes we call that the seed promise. He also promises to make of Abraham's descendants a great nation. And so Abraham at this point says him and his wife doesn't even have any children at this point, but God says, I'm going to make of your offspring a great nation. And then he says, I'm going to give them a land to live in. And so as the story unfolds, we begin to see how this promise is fulfilled. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 12. Abraham leaves his family, leaves his homeland. He, he sojourns, he makes his trip, ends up in the land of Canaan, which we've got pictured up here on the map. The land of Canaan, in verse 7 it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, the land that you're in right now, the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so it's, it's very clear, isn't it, that God promised to give this land, the land of Canaan, to Abraham's descendants. So notice that, not to Abraham himself or to his immediate family, but to his offspring, to his descendants. In fact, it's going to be 400 years before Abraham's descendants uh, possess the land. Look at chapter 15 of Genesis, beginning in verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. I'll judge that the nation whom they will serve, and afterward you will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so you're going to go into another nation. They're going to enslave you in four generations, 400 years. You're going to come out, and you're going to come back here to this land, the land of, of Canaan. And you know how that story unfolds. The descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, go into Egypt. They're enslaved. After 400 years, they come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 12 and verses 37, 38, and 39, there the book of Exodus tells us that they come out of Egypt after 430 years to the very day. And so after 400 years of enslavement, they come out and uh, they make their way then to uh, the land of Canaan, back to the promised land. They went down into Egypt, Abraham's descendants, the family of Jacob. They go down into Egypt, about 75 people. When they come out of Egypt, there are 600,000 
men who are eligible to fight. It doesn't count women and children. And if you extrapolate from that 600,000 number and try to estimate how many women there might be or how many young children there might be, it would uh, figure to somewhere around two or three million people come up out of, out of Egypt. They make their way to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, God confirms the covenant that He has made. And so verse 5 of Exodus 19 now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. So after they leave Sinai, or after they come up out of Egypt and come to Sinai, God, now they've become a great nation, haven't they? Two to three million people at Mount Sinai. God tells them, you will be to me a holy nation. And so that part of the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. You will become a great nation. And then ultimately, of course, the seed promise is fulfilled in Christ. But what then about the land promise that they would be given that particular land? So after they leave Mount Sinai, they make their way to the promised land. We won't go into all the details, but they're delayed for 40 years due to their lack of faith and disobedience. And then we read about them fulfilling, them entering into the promised land, and God fulfilling the promise that He made to them. Didn't God promise to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan? Yes, He did make that promise. We've seen that. But I hope we'll see that He fulfilled that promise. So after 40 years of wandering, they make their way to the threshold of the Promised Land, and then they go over Canaan. Moses died. He's unable to enter the Promised Land. Under the leadership of Joshua, they cross the Jordan, and they come to the city of Jericho. The opening chapters of the book of Joshua talk about how they take the city of Jericho. After they take the city of Jericho, they turn to the south. Joshua chapter 10, verses 41 and 42 tell us that they turn to the south and they conquer various cities and they gain control of the south. And then they turn their attention to the north. And Joshua chapter 11, verses 16 and 23 tell us how they conquer the cities of the north and control them. In several passages in the book of Joshua... We're told that they possess the land, and not any of the promises that God made to Israel concerning the land failed. And so let's look at a couple of those. Those are important promises to keep in mind in connection with this, with this discussion tonight. Joshua 24 and, uh, 21 and verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That's, that's, that's pretty clear. That God gave them all the land, and they controlled it. They possessed it. None of the promises that God had made to them failed. All came to pass. Look at another similar statement in the book of Joshua, chapter 23 and verse 14. 
Joshua says, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. This is Joshua's last address to the people. And you know, in all your hearts and in all your souls, that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Let's continue. It shall come about that just as all the good words which your, the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until He has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off the good land which He has given you. So I want you to kind of put those last two verses kind of in the back of your mind for a minute because we're going to come back to them in, in just a little while. Joshua says that all the promises were fulfilled, that they possessed the land, that none of the promises failed. Even if you look at chapter 12 of the book of Joshua and look at verse 1, even land beyond the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, uh, were possess was possessed by Israel. Joshua 12, verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom uh, the sons of Israel defeated and, and whose land they possessed. Beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Hermon, and all the Arabah to the east. And so this is the land they possessed beyond the Jordan. Remember there are two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan. Now, those statements seem pretty clear to me, that the promise was fulfilled, that they entered into the land, they defeated the enemies, they controlled the land, they possessed the land, and they lived in it. Now, they did not drive out all the people that they should have driven out. And you can see a long list of those people in Judges chapter 1, verses 27 through 36. But God gave them the land, they possessed it, they controlled it, and they settled in it and lived in it. Chapter 24 of Joshua and verse 13, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, and you are eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. I gave you a land that uh, you have not labored for. And so again, just simply another confirmation of this idea that the promise was fulfilled. Now, there are a couple of uh, considerations that confirm, just uh, additional confirmations of this idea that the promise was fulfilled. You remember when Israel got into the land, they were to establish some cities of refuge. You remember the cities of refuge were towns where someone who had killed someone, killed them accidentally, they could find safety in this city of refuge from someone who is seeking revenge until his case could be heard and be settled. And as long as he stayed in that city, well then he was safe, or supposed to be safe from attack. And so they were to set up these cities of refuge. There were to be three of them on the west side of the Jordan. And then if they secured the land, then there would be three more of these cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. 
Set up these three cities of refuge. Now, when were they to do that? When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their house, then you set up these cities of refuge. Three of them on the west side of the Jordan. Go down to verse 8. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as He had sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land which He promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all His commandments, which I command you this today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. And so if the Lord, Lord enlarges your territory and you possess that land on the west side, the east side of the Jordan, then add three more cities. Well, if you look at Joshua chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, you'll find six cities of refuge established. Three on the west of the Jordan, three on the east of the Jordan. Well, what, what, does that, what, what uh, implications should we, or should we draw from that? Well, they possessed the territory on the west side of the Jordan and the territory on the east side of the Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan. See if I can get my east and west, keep them separated. Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan, and they made an appeal to Moses to allow them to do that. Moses says, okay, you can do that, but first, you've got to come over and help us fight on the west side of the Jordan. And once we control that land and possess it, then you can return to the east side of the Jordan and, and settle there. In Joshua 22, verses 6 through 9, we find Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh being released from their obligation to go back and settle on the east side of the Jordan. So simply another confirmation that the promise was fulfilled. God gave them the land. They controlled the land. They possessed it, and they settled in it. Sometimes people will argue that Israel did not fully possess the land, and the promises to Abraham are yet to be fulfilled. But the Scripture is clear by direct statement and by implication. The land was possessed, and the promise fulfilled. But retaining possession of the land, was conditioned on Israel's faithfulness. And so God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Pretty straightforward statement. He does give Abraham's descendants the land, but retaining possession of the land was conditioned upon Israel's faithfulness. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. This particular chapter is a long chapter. It contains a number of blessings that are going to come to Israel if they're obedient to to the Lord, and a number of curses that are going to come upon them if they're disobedient. One of the curses that's going to come upon them if they're disobedient is they're going to lose possession of the land. Look especially at verse 63. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. And God's going to scatter you among the nations. And so again, retaining possession of the land depended upon their obedience. And this indicates, if you are disobedient, I'm going to tear you off the land and I'm going to scatter you among the nations. We've been studying the book of Ezekiel in our, our class uh, back in the back on Sunday morning and, and Wednesday night. 
Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. In our study, came across this passage and thought it was interesting as it relates to this particular subject. In Ezekiel chapter 33, look at verse, uh, we're going to begin in verse 20, 23. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with the blood in it, you lift up your eyes to idol as you shed blood. In other words, you're, you're disobedient people. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? <laughs> thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, as I, as I live, surely those who are in waste places will fall by the sword. Whoever is in the open field, I will give it to the beast to be devoured. Those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease. And the mountains of Israel will be desolate so that no one will pass through. That they will all know that I am the Lord when I make up the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they've committed. You know, you, you say, Abraham was just one. He, he possessed the land. How much more? We are many. Shall we possess the land? You're, you're sinful people. You're rebellious. You're disobedient. Should you possess the land? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take you off the land and it's going to be a desolation. And so, does God, doesn't God promise to give Israel the land? Yes, He does. He does make that promise. But He's fulfilled that promise. And it's important to remember that retaining possession of the land was conditioned on Israel's faithfulness. And they were not faithful. It's very clear. They, they were not faithful. Well, that raises a, a second question then. Didn't God promise to restore Israel to the land? Okay, I understand. God, Israel was not faithful, and God took them out of the land. Uh, they sent them into captivity, scattered them among the nations. But, but doesn't God promise to restore Israel to the land? Don't I remember reading that in the prophets as well? Well, yes, of course. Again, in our study of Ezekiel, we've come across, actually, several of these kinds of promises Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 17 is just a sample. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And there are a number of promises just like that one. Doesn't God promise to restore Israel to the land? Well, well yes, He does. All this really goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's go back to that passage. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and let's see this promise there. Verse 1, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Remember we talked about the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. One of those that they'd be taken off the land. And so the blessing and the curse are going to come upon you, which I've said before you, and you, you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Doesn't He promise to restore them to the land? Well, well yes. Yes, He does. The prophets contain several statements to that effect as well as Moses all the way back to Moses' time. 
And so, yes, God promises a restoration to the land. But it's important to note that what's promised is that a remnant will return. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Or rather, Isaiah chapter, not 11, chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. And so God is going to use an evil nation, Assyria, to bring punishment and judgment against his own ungodly people. Hopefully they'll learn a lesson from that. And so, and then he's going to hold Assyria responsible for the brutality that they've committed against his people. So woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I sent it, or I sent it against a godless nation, commissioned it against the people of my fury, to capture booty, to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet he doesn't so intend, nor does it, nor, nor does it uh, plan so in his heart, but rather it's his purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are, are, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish and Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? And so he's saying, I'm going to use Damascus or use Assyria to destroy my people, but I'm going to hold them responsible for what they've done. And then look at verse 20. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. Only a remnant will return. And so, doesn't God promise to restore Israel to the land? Yes, we've seen where that promise is made, but it's important to remember that only a remnant, only a small segment of the total number of people are going to return to Israel, to the, to the land. It's also confirmed by the name of one of Isaiah's children, Sha'ar Yashuv. A remnant will return is the meaning of his name. And that promise is fulfilled. This, this particular promise is fulfilled when Israel, the Israelites, the Jews, return from the Babylonian captivity. There's one return under the leadership of Zerubbabel, takes place in 538 B.C. 42,360 of the Jews return to Israel. A second return is led by Ezra in 458 B.C. B.C. About 1,500 Jews return under Ezra, and then a third under the leadership of Nehemiah. And so you can see several thousand return. Now, it might not be a whole lot compared to the total number of Israel, but that's all Isaiah said would return. A remnant will return. And that promise, of course, is fulfilled in the returns of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. The Jews living in Jerusalem and Judah live under the control of Gentile nations, Persia and Greece and Rome, for example. But in the second century B.C., they fight for and win independence from Greece under the Maccabees. And so they fight for their independence, they gain their independence, and they retain that independence for about a hundred years until the Roman period and the Romans take control in the first century B.C. And so the promises of God hold true. 
God promised to give the land to Abraham's descendants. He fulfills that promise. Retaining possession of the land depends on their obedience. They didn't obey, and so, according to God's promise, He takes them out of the land. Does He promise to restore them to the land? Yes, He does. But remember, only a remnant will return. And we see the fulfillment of that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, that raises then a third question. Didn't God promise Israel a glorious future? The return of Israel to the land was small, hardly glorious. The independence they gained in the Maccabees was short-lived, a hundred years, and really insignificant in the course of history. Nothing like the glory and prosperity and dominion that was promised by the prophets. Well, yes, God does promise Israel a glorious future. And you can read that in the prophets, and it doesn't take very long to come across those kinds of statements. But I want you to remember a couple of things as you read those statements. Understand that many of God's promises are conditional in nature. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. We just read from that where God promised to restore Israel to the land and multiply them more than their fathers and prosper them. Then look at verse 8 and 9. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, and the offspring of your body, and the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord with all your heart. And so, notice the condition. Bring you back into the land, you're going to prosper. And your ground is going to produce abundantly if, verse 10, if you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments with all your heart. And so, remember, God's commandments or God's promises are always or often uh, conditional. Israel was not faithful to God. Ultimately, ended up rejecting his, his Son, His only begotten Son. So they weren't faithful to God. And so the glory they may have experienced was not achieved. But also remember this, as you read through these, these prophecies concerning the glory of Israel, the, prophets are, pro, the promises are often stated in figurative, spiritual, symbolic language. Remember we talked about that last time I talked on Sunday night? We threw a whole lesson about the Bible. Is the Bible to be taken literally? Well, yes, where the author intends it to be taken literally, but Often the Bible uses figurative language, spiritual language, symbolic language, where this particular item is stated, but it's a figure for something else. We'll re-preach all of that. But let me just show a couple of examples of this. Look at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 says that Israel will live securely on their land, beginning in Verse 21, Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 21. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things. 
<clears throat> or with any of their transgressions, I'll deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. All right, so here's what I want you to notice about that passage. Just notice the figurative language that's used. Look at verse 24. I'm going to bring them back, I'm going to settle them in the land, and my servant David will be king over them. Now, we do expect David to rise from the dead and be made king over Israel. Some might not suggest so. But we know this is fulfilled in the son of David, Jesus, who is the king over the kingdom of God. They'll have one shepherd. Take that literally. There's only going to be one shepherd in all the nation of Israel. Well, no. Now there's going to be one king who will lead them. Shepherd being a figurative statement or figure description of the king, Christ, who will lead them. So I'm just trying to show you how these prophetic statements are filled with, very often filled with, symbolic or figurative language. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them, be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst. We're going to rebuild the physical temple uh, during the Messianic period when, the, when David is ruling over the world. Well, well, no, no. And so the sanctuary, and the New Testament makes this clear, the temple of the Lord today is a spiritual temple. That's the church. And and David, who's to reign, that's Christ reigning over his people. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God. They'll be my people, and the nations will know that I'm the Lord who uh, sanctifies Israel, and when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And so that's, that's a good passage to illustrate how the prophets use symbolic language, figurative language, spiritual language to make their point. Look at one other example uh, along this line. Again, in the book of Ezekiel, this time Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34 and uh, verse 23. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'll make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness, sleep in the woods. Now, are we to to expect that in the messianic kingdom, there will be no no mean animals, (laughs) no no dangerous beasts, no harmful animals. All of that is going to be gone. Well, no, this is a figurative way to say that this kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace. And God's God's people are going to enjoy His protection. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase. They will be secure on their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. Well, what's happened, of course, is that we've moved from a physical kingdom with a physical king and a physical temple, and we made a transition from that era to an era where we have a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual king, and a spiritual temple. The prophets suggest that and indicate that, predict that, but they do so in language and ideas that 
the first readers can relate to. Now, what I compare it to is like the book of Revelation describing heaven for us. A street of gold, gates of pearls, uh, things like that. Now, are, are we to expect a literal street of gold in heaven? No, he's just describing heaven in terms that we can understand. Well, it's something like what the prophets are doing. They're talking about one of these days, we're going to live in the land. We're going to have one great king over us. It's going to be a kingdom of peace. We're not going to be threatened by any, any, any mean animals or dangerous animals. It's going to be wonderful. Not meaning to be taken literally, but in a figurative way, understanding the great blessings of the kingdom. Well, let me just make one, one other point or maybe two other points. Now, what leads me to that conclusion is the fact that the New Testament writers, the New Testament writers, apply statements that are made by prophets to the church. Let me give you one good example of that. There, there are several, but I'll, I'll give you one or two good examples of that. Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there's this controversy about the binding of circumcision on Gentiles who become Christians. Uh, Paul and Barnabas go down, and they, they talk with the elders there and the church in Jerusalem, and, and others are involved in the, the, the dialogue and the conversation. And verse 13, it says, after they had stopped speaking, Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas speak, and after they, they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or, or that's Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's, that's a reference to the household of Cornelius. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. In other words, I'm going to build up the Davidic dynasty again, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I'm going to restore the house of David. And, uh, you know, it, it, it fell. The Davidic line was, uh, came to an end with Zedekiah in captivity, Jehoiachin. Now, the Davidic line stayed alive, but no king from the line of David ruled over, over the Jews after Zedekiah. And so Amos says, James is quoting Amos chapter 9 here, and Amos said, and incidentally he says, the words of the prophets agree with this. So not just Amos that says this, but the other prophets are consistent with this message. And the Lord says, after these things I'll return, and I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so Amos chapter 9 talked about the restoration of the tabernacle of David, and all the Gentiles flowing into that, being covered by that. And, and, and James is saying, you know what, that applies to our situation today. That's why he quotes it. Now they're concerned with whether or not Gentiles must be circumcised, conformed to the law of Moses in order to be saved. And what James says is, you know, Amos looked forward to our day and spoke about the inclusion of the Gentiles and the restoration of the fallen tabernacle of David. So what James is saying is, here's a prophecy of, of the Old Testament, but it's fulfilled today in the church. Okay? And so that's why I say often the prophets speak in terms of, of the Davidic line, temple, a nation, king, and things like that. 
But those things are fulfilled in a spiritual way in the, the Messiahship and dominion of Christ ruling over His people, the church. Look at the book of Hebrews. We'll look at one other example of this. Time's just about out. But look at the book of Hebrews. And uh, beginning in verse 18, the writer of the book of Hebrews is contrasting what, take, what took place at Mount Sinai with the current situation in the church. And he begins to say in verse 22, Now you haven't come to this physical Mount Sinai where there is fear and trembling and, and those kinds of things, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in, in, uh, in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and so forth. You've come to Mount Zion. Now, that's a physical place, isn't it? Mount Zion. You can go over there today and see it. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to Jerusalem. Now, that's a physical place in the city of Jerusalem. But you see what he's saying? You've come to heavenly Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem. As members of the church of Jesus Christ, you've come to a new place of existence, spiritual Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. It's a spiritual Mount Zion the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And so again, the conclusion is that when prophets speak of Israel, king, shepherd, peaceful animals living securely in the land, temple, Jerusalem, they're describing spiritual truth realized in the church under the Messiah, but using terms and ideas that the first hearers could relate to. Again, we've transitioned from physical to spiritual. Well, that might raise just one other question. Sorry about that. One other question. If, if we've transitioned from physical to spiritual, and now we are spiritual Israel, the church is spiritual Israel, and God enters into a covenant with people from all nations who are to Him a new spiritual Israel, has God completely reject, rejected Israel today? Has God completely rejected them? So if the prophets look forward to a time when a transition was made from national Israel to spiritual Israel, does that mean He's rejected physical Israel altogether? Well, no, He hasn't. In fact, that question might sound familiar to you. Because that's the very question that Paul entertains in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. Look at especially Romans chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. Verse 11 says, the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Has God rejected it? Well, no, he hasn't rejected Israel. Today, all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are acceptable to God through Christ. And so God will accept physical Israel as they come to Him through Christ. And so, no, He hasn't rejected uh, Israel altogether. There was a time when national Israel may have enjoyed a favored nation status with God, but now all nations enter into His favor in the same way that is through Christ. By way of conclusion, in Acts chapter 28, Paul says that he is being accused by the Jews 
And uh, it was on trial for the hope of Israel. Look at verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. I'm wearing this chain because I'm committed to the hope of Israel. What did Paul understand by that expression, the hope of Israel? What is the hope of Israel? Well, Paul's work was to show that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. That he was ruling from the throne at the right hand of God. That all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, could enter into that kingdom and enjoy all the benefits of full citizenship. That's the hope of Israel. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ and His reign. This message, which Paul describes as the hope of Israel, is not a future prospect, a present reality. And we can participate in that hope as well. So, that's just some questions about Israel and the land. I think it was last Sunday I talked about some... uh, passages from the book of Proverbs. I said, you know, there are all kind of diff- different, there are different kinds of sermons. Uh, there are some uh, theological type sermons and doctrinal sermons, and, and then they're very practical sermons. This is a doctrinal sermon. <laughs> it's one of the, uh, those doctrinal sermons. And it may be, maybe not your cup of tea in a way, but, but you know, serious mistakes are made because we don't hold to the right doctrine. So we, we need to be concerned about what the Bible teaches holding to the right doctrine in order to avoid those serious mistakes. And that's, that's been our objective tonight, especially in light of what's going on in that part of the world and what we are seeing on the news every day. But I, hope it's been, I hope it has been profitable in some way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for uh, what we've been able to do today, that we've been able to come together and to worship We pray that what we've done in our worship has praised you and glorified you and magnified your name uh, in a way that's acceptable to you and that's pleasing to you. It has been edifying to us and and beneficial for us, uh, but we pray, Father, first first of all and foremost, that it's been pleasing to you. Father, we're thankful for your plan of salvation. We're, We're thankful that you've worked it out through the course of human history. Uh, We're thankful that you are mindful of us and that you want to have fellowship with us and that even though we've rebelled against you at times and even though we've sinned and uh, fallen short, that you've been patient with us and that you will be merciful to us and forgive us of our sins. We're thankful, Father, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners We're thankful that He gave His life on the cross and shed His blood to make atonement for our sin. We're thankful, Father, that He sits at Your right hand, that He he is our King and He is our Lord, and He leads us and guides us in the paths that we ought to go in, in in a way that will please You. Father, we're thankful for the Word that You've given to us, that we can read it and study it. Give us clarity of thought, Father, Help us to remove anything that would be a hindrance or an obstacle to our understanding your word in the way that you would have us understand it. And Father, once we understand the truth that we find in your word, help us, Father, to share it with others so that they can enjoy the benefit of full citizenship in your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you'll go with us. 
throughout the rest of this night, the days and weeks ahead, that you'll guide us in the path that you want us to walk in, all, all the way from this life until the life that you have stored up for us in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate you.